Amen. We'll open your Bibles to John 7. John 7, verses 1 through 36. I'm going to be looking at this wonderful text this morning. And, you know, we've already been having some uh, just uh, wonderful times uh, being here in, in South OC, uh, having moved in here recently. And um, obviously at the top of the list has been just getting to know uh, so many of you and others who are in the Tuesday night Bible study. Had some meetings this week already with some men, getting to know some of the men. You guys, you guys have some, some quality men in this church. And uh, that's a testament to your head pastor, Pastor Mike, and the other pastors and so many faithful men and women over the years. And I just want to um, affirm you. So we've already been having a good time doing that. And that's at the top of the list. But the other thing that we've enjoyed is we are really, really close to our favorite beautiful beaches now, uh, including Laguna Beach. How many of you guys enjoy Laguna Beach? I love Laguna Beach. I think I've mentioned already probably a hundred times that um, we love Laguna Beach. Over the years, that's just one of our favorite family stops because I think that, that beach's got stuff for older and younger kids. The other uh, beautiful beach that we appreciate is Newport Beach and Balboa uh, Island. Um, uh, that's where I proposed to my wife back in 1999, Newport Beach. So enjoy that. How many of you guys enjoy Newport Beach? Yep. What I love about that uh, particular area is that it's always very busy and happening, and we just love that as a family. We love going in there and obviously interacting with the people who are there and, and all of that. We had a, a family who owned a home on Baboa Island <coughs> back in the day when the kids were younger, and so we would go for a week in the summertime to spend time on Baboa Island, and we just have some great memories, and especially on 4th of July, we would love going to those particular beaches. Uh, because it was so full of activity, and people would be pouring in from all over uh, Southern California, especially San Diego would come up for uh, that, that celebration. And so the, it was just always so electric, the atmosphere, and so full of energy as all these people were there. And the reason why I mentioned that, that atmosphere of energy and just electricity, if you will, and uh, just a lot of people coming in and being full of activity is because that really is the way that it got in Jerusalem during the times of the great feasts, the great Jewish feasts. People would pour in from all over Palestine, in and around the, air, the region of Palestine, and they would come in for these great feasts. And even to a greater degree, this atmosphere in Jerusalem was just a place to be, okay? And so if you look at chapter 7 and verse 2 of John... We know that this is the kind of atmosphere that it was during the context of our passage. It says that the feast of booths was at hand. Not booze, okay? But booths. The feast of booths was also called a feast of tabernacles. And if you know about the feast, it was basically the last Jewish feast of the year. And one of the three major Jewish feasts, along with Pentecost and uh, Passover... Um, if you're thinking about this feast, it was both a, a commemoration and a celebration, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It was a historical commemoration, as you know, in that it recalled the, the wandering of the Israelites in the wilderness when the Israelites went from place to place, setting up tents. They never found, the first generation never found a permanent place to live because of their rebellion or they never entered the land. But through all of that, Yahweh was their dwelling place, and Yahweh took care of them. The Feast of Booth was also an agricultural celebration, not only a, a historical commemoration, but an agricultural celebration. Just as God, during the Exodus, had provided for his people, 
Now in the present time, and even in, in our context here, at the close of the harvest season, people got together in Jerusalem, poured in from all over the place to celebrate God's abundant provision at the end of harvest. And so it was this great Thanksgiving celebration. But as you think about this historical time marker in chapter 7 and verse 2 that John gives us that is very helpful, you need to realize that the Feast of Booths took place sometime between September and October, okay? So you ask Pastor Kempis, why is this so significant? Well, I'm really glad that you asked, okay? Um, it's important because back in John chapter 6 and verse 4, if you remember, we're told that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews was at hand. When was the Passover, anyone, when was the Passover celebrated? March or April, right? March and April. And so that means, think about this, that John chapter 7 is now approximately six months later, right? Six months later, we are fast forwarding, if you will. We're going back to the future. It is now the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, and pilgrims are pouring in from all over Palestine, and the atmosphere is full of energy, full of excitement, as thousands and thousands of people are there in Jerusalem. And part of the tradition and commemoration of the Old Testament wilderness wandering was for people to set up booths or tents. It's part of that celebration and that commemoration. And for thousands upon thousands of sacrifices to be made to God as, a, as an act of gratitude uh, for the harvest season. So this is the setting of our passage, okay? These historical markers are so important in six, chapter 6 and verse 4 and chapter 7 and verse 2 that help us really set our passages in context and brings out the added significance of everything that then we're going to see even today. But as we think about these necessary details, brothers, I don't, I don't want you to lose sight of the main point and really the main person who is who? The Lord Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus. And here in John 7, verses 1 through 36, I want us to, to observe or to really walk through this passage and observe some beautiful, wonderful snapshots of our Lord Jesus. I want to call these portraits of our glorious Christ, okay? Portraits of our glorious Christ. As you know, we just moved to Orange County as a family, and when you unpack, you rediscover a lot of things, right, that you probably should have packed a lot better. But, you know, one of the things that I've been unpacking are these beautiful uh, picture frames, taking off the bubble wrap off of some of these. And there's these beautiful pictures that we have, um, portraits that remind me of just various seasons in the life of my wife and kids, beautiful things that we cherish, treasures these portraits to behold. I want us to really approach these verses that way, to walk through this, through this particular passage with an eye to beholding some portraits of the glorious Christ. And for what purpose? What is the so that? So that one, we might exult, not exalt, but exult in our Savior, which means to rejoice or relish in Him, that our affections would be moved within us, right? Because if your affections are not moved, those things that you hate and love, you're not going to be moved towards obedience. We want to be men who are characterized by loving, grateful obedience. And that happens as you rejoice and relish in your Savior and who He is, so that it leads to um, sustainable, heartfelt, genuine action. So as we behold these, uh, our, our, our glorious Christ here, I want us to exult in our Savior, and I want us to do this with an eye toward emulating His character. Because Jesus is the perfect God-man, and more than anyone else, we should seek to em emulate 
his character, okay? So as you're taking notes, write down these portraits here. First of all, I want us to notice his divine prerogative. I want us to behold Jesus' divine prerogative in verses 1 through 9. It seems that throughout the Gospels there are all kinds of people who are always trying to tell Jesus what to do. And what we find here in these verses is no exception. Watch this. In verse 1, verse 1 tells us that during the time that Jesus, during this time, Jesus is hanging around up north in the region of Galilee because it's clear that the Jews want to kill him. In fact, back in chapter 5, verse 48, it says this. And later on in chapter 7 and verse 32, it says that they sought to seize him. So the Jewish leaders want to get rid of Jesus. They want him gone. And now here are his antagonistic half-brothers who come all but ordering Jesus, right? Look at verse 3. His brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, check these guys out. They are in essence ordering Jesus to go prove himself further to his followers. And not only that, but they're questioning his motives. They're looking at Jesus as if he's just doing miracles for the sake of promoting himself to get attention. And John, of course, insightfully, as he does throughout the Gospel of John, give us these, gives us these, this side commentary. He tells us in verse 5 that they were doing all of this because not even his brothers believed in him. In other words, in both the content and the motivation of their hearts, these guys gave evidence of their unbelief. Well, how does Jesus respond? I mean, this is a lot of pressure. This is even his, his, own, his own family who is aggressively, aggressively and wickedly coaxing Jesus to go to the feast. What's Jesus' answer? Look at verse 6. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. And then look down at verse 8. My time has not yet fully come. And then drop down to verse 30 later on. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Those verses are key in in our passage. What Jesus is saying is, and what John is telling us is, these individuals, including Jesus' half-brothers, may have plans, but Jesus was on a divine timetable, right? Jesus was on a divine timetable. There was a predetermined, pre-planned divine timetable And Jesus was going to fulfill his father's will. No one was going to get in the way of that. He operated according to his divine prerogative. In submission to his father's perfect pre-planned will for what he was about to accomplish. See, we may be tempted to, to think as we read some of these passages in the gospel of John and the other gospels. We may be tempted to, to think as we see the things that happen. That Jesus is, is surprised by the things that are happening. That he's sort of backpedaling when people don't believe him. That he's on his heels, sort of biting his fingers and thinking, okay, what is plan B? Plan A didn't work. But that's far from the truth. That is not the case. Here these people, even his own half-brothers, are trying to impose their wicked plans on him. But take note of your Savior and your Redeemer. Jesus is in total control. He's operating according to a divine blueprint by his own divine prerogative in accordance with his father's eternal 
plan. And brothers, I want to remind us this morning, if that was the case during Jesus' incarnation, when he added a human nature to his divine nature, if that was the case then that he was in control and he operated according to his divine prerogative and he is sovereign over everything, how much more in our lives now? Amen? How much more even now? I mean, just think about these two, these past two to three years especially, with all the craziness surrounding all things COVID. Maybe, as you've seen, everything that's taken place and we've experienced these things that, are, that really have been unique and unprecedented during our lifetimes. Maybe as you've seen these things, you too may have been tempted to wonder, is God really in control of this? I mean, could it be that, that there is a God up there who, who fell asleep through this? We just sort of got his creation going, but now he, he just allows it to, to sort of run by itself, and he's not in control. Maybe you've been led to think thoughts like that. Maybe you wouldn't articulate it, but maybe you've operated that way. Maybe you've functioned accordingly. Maybe you've struggled financially. You lost your job, and you wonder, where, where's God in all of this? Maybe you've you or your loved ones have had serious health issues. Maybe somebody that you love or cared about or know from a distance at least had health issues and, and, and passed away during this time. Maybe you've had some difficult trials in your life of a physical, emotional, or spiritual nature. Maybe uh, some wayward children. Maybe some wayward grandchildren that you're concerned about. Maybe you've experienced some of this and through it all you wonder, Lord, are you still in control? Do you see what is taking place? Well, what's the answer, brothers? Of course he sees. Amen? Of course he sees. And not only does he see and is he in control, but he, excuse me, he absolutely cares about us. He absolutely cares. And there is a design and a sovereign plan in all of this. And as hard as these things may be for us, we need to remember and continue to rest in the fact that God operates according to his divine prerogative and timetable. And what he's doing in our lives is that he wants us to, to trust him. He wants us to depend upon him. He wants us, even as Christians, to, in our sanctification, to operate not according to our own resources and, and our own energy, but to be dependent upon him, his resources, his power, right? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, for when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong so that the power of who may be perfected in me? Of Christ. That's what God does for us in the midst of our trials. His grace is sufficient in our trials. And not only is he in control, but I want to remind us this morning that he also loves and cares for us. Because sometimes we can tend to talk about issues like these of the sovereignty of God almost a, in a robotic, mechanical kind of way. You know, we throw out these big theological statements that God is sovereign and we preach it, we believe that, the word of God affirms it, amen? But then we also don't affirm, not only is he in control, but he actually cares for you. He actually cares for you in the midst of operating according to his divine prerogative. I love 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. Write that verse down. 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, which tells us, believer, Christian, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God right there. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And how are we to do this? How do we acknowledge the sovereignty of God 
over us by casting all of our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. He's not only sovereign, but he cares. He loves us. And so as we behold this first portrait of Jesus, I want us to be strengthened by Jesus' divine prerogative as God. I want us to, to encourage us to rest in our difficult circumstances or trials, even those that you may be going through this morning, things that are weighing heavy on you. Remember, brother in Christ, that not only is nothing happening in your life, that it's outside of God's control, but God absolutely cares for you and loves you in the midst of it. All right? Here's a second portrait. His fearless courage. Behold Jesus' fearless courage in verses 10 through 13. Jesus has just told his brothers, if you remember, that he would not go with them to Jerusalem. But then look at verse 10, what he does. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. What? Pastor Kempis, I, I, I thought that Jesus told his brothers that he wouldn't be going up to the feast. Did Jesus just lie to his brothers? That the eternal son of God, blameless and perfect as the scripture teaches that he is, did he just sin here? Well, not at all. How's that? Well, Jesus never said here that he wouldn't be going to the feast at all or ever, did he? He didn't go up to the feast with them, tooting his horn publicly as they almost or, uh, all but ordered him to do. That's what he did not do. See, they've accused Jesus of having self-driven motives, of, having, of wanting to draw attention, of wanting to, to cause a splash. You just want to be known, Jesus. They are accusing him of false motivation before the people. But that's not what Jesus was after. And so Jesus goes to the feast, not with a posse of people, but by himself. Not tooting a horn, but, but privately. Not publicly, but by himself. And by the time he gets there, there is much debate going on about him, right? Verse 12 tells us of this ongoing muttering uh, amongst all the people. There are all kinds of opinions flying around about Jesus. And then on top of that, there is intense hostility on the part of the religious leaders, the Jews. They're looking for an opportunity, these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. They're looking for an opportunity to eliminate Jesus because they know that the longer that they allow Jesus to continue this way, the more that they're even in danger of losing their rights and privileges before the Roman authorities. So what are they after? They want to deal with Jesus, get him out of the way. So much opposition against Jesus. So much hostility. And through it all, I marvel at our Savior that he is fearlessly courageous, isn't he? Unwavering in his courage and commitment to do exactly what God, his Father, has called him to do. In fact, later on in verse 28, where do you find him of all places? In the temple. I mean, if you're trying to avoid... Somebody wiping you out. If you're trying to avoid hostility from the Jewish religious leaders, you don't go to the lion's den, to the temple, do you? And yet that's what, exactly what Jesus does. And I ask you, why? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he display such fearless courage? The answer is, first of all, this is who he is. This is who, he's the perfect, blameless God-man. And so we're beholding a, a perfectly 
fearless, courageous individual here, the God-man. But also, the answer is, he, did, he displayed this kind of fearless courage that he might go to the cross, brothers, to be our Redeemer. That he might die on the cross for our sins. That by faith, we might have forgiveness and eternal life. Quantity and quality of life. He did this because he wanted to fulfill his Father's will and love us as our Redeemer. Think about that. We must exult in the fearless courage of our Savior first and foremost. But also as we look at Jesus' fearless courage, I want to encourage us and challenge us by God's grace to emulate his courage as a man of God in this day and age. Man, we need men who are courageous in our world today, don't we? Young and older. Especially these days when everything seems to be pushing back against biblical truth, against the gospel, against what is right, against God's design for the family. How much more do we need to be fearlessly courageous by God's grace like Jesus? And we won't be perfect in that. Amen? You've experienced that? How many times have we not cowered away when there are divine appointments like Pastor Mike was talking about? Opportunities for us to share Jesus and and we didn't take those opportunities. How many times have we blown it? We're not going to do that perfectly. But by by God's grace, we need to emulate the courage of Jesus. Ask Ask Him to help us to be men who are standing up for the truth. Read and meditate sometime on 1 Corinthians 15, 13 which instructs us to to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The sense there in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 is that we are called to be courageous, to be unwavering in what God has called us to be and to do, brothers. We need, by God's grace, to be courageous ambassadors, as Pastor Mike was talking about on Sunday mornings, ambassadors who know the gospel and proclaim it boldly and unashamedly, right? We need to be courageous single men, young single men and older single men, who locate your identity and your contentment and happiness in King Jesus, and you use your resources and your time and your energy for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. That is a courageous single man young or older. We need to be courageous married men, young or older, who are loving our wives and laying down our lives for our spouses, walking in service and sensitivity toward them, meeting our wives where they're at, even despite their weaknesses, because we have more than they do, right? We need to be courageous fathers who enjoy and discipline and train our children in the ways of the Lord, this is in the, in the midst of a, of a wicked culture, brothers, that is pushing back against everything that God has set forth in his word that has to do with his design for the family. Our culture is vehemently opposed to those things. We need courageous men by God's grace, not harsh men, courageous, gracious, gentle men who stand firm by biblical convictions. That requires that you know what you believe, right? We were learning about that Sunday morning that you know the truth well. What are convictions? Convictions are beliefs that you are willing to pay the price for, right? Those are convictions. You're willing to lose a position. You're willing to lose whatever for the sake of those convictions because you really believe what you believe from the Word of God and your convictions need to be biblical convictions. Well, that's where courage comes from, from biblical convictions. You know, I had a mentor who 
for a, a while, was meeting with me many years ago, and he wasn't afraid of saying the hard things to me. You know, you know those guys just sit with you, and they're not patting you on the back, right? They're kind of slapping you around, giving you a jab, figuratively speaking, on the chin, reminding you of what's important. And when he would challenge me, he would often say, Kempis, are you a man or a mouse? Right? Men, are you a man or a mouse today? Are you functioning and acting courageously for the sake of the glory of your king? This glorious Christ that we are beholding here. Because mark it, when you and I, by God's grace, act courageously, when we display strength like this in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, we're following in the footsteps of our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're glorifying God. Amen? But let us live courageously in the face of great opposition and hostility like our glorious Christ did. All right, we've seen his divine prerogative, his fearless courage. Write this third one down, his genuine humility. His genuine humility in verses 14 through 18. I love this. The text tells us in verse 14 that right smack in the middle of the feast, when festivities were at their highest, Jesus goes right into the temple and he taught in such a way that verse 15 it says that the Jews marveled, it says. The New American Standard says that they were astonished when they heard Jesus teach. Earlier in his uh, um, uh, ministry, uh, this man teaches with authority, not as our scribes and Pharisees. So they were astonished. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied, they were asking. Well, that's a good question. When you look at, the, at Jesus, never did a man function and operate the way that he did. Never did a man speak the kinds of things that Jesus spoke. Good question. Question. If we were in Jesus' shoes... What would we answer to a question like that? What would we answer? Well, you know, I've, I've sat under some really good teaching for a long time. That's why I have such knowledge. You know, I've taken a lot of classes over the years within my church and outside. I've been to the Compass Bible Institute. I've taken those classes. That's how, why I'm so learned. Hey, in my, I've, been, I've been to seminary. Of course I'm going to know a lot of stuff. Listen, if we were asked this question, we may be quick to outline our credentials for people to admire us, for people to sort of, you know, pat us on the back. But what does our Lord Jesus answer? When the people are marveling and they're astonished at his teaching, what does the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one who is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, who has performed some amazing miracles and displayed some great unrivaled power, what does the one with endless credentials and legitimate credentials, what does he answer here? Don't miss his answer. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him, his who sent me. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Did you catch Jesus' answer? As they're asking, how did this guy become so learned? Did you catch his answer? First, he continues to point to his divine origin. In verse 16, God sent me. 
but also upon hearing the antagonistic Jewish leaders inquire about his credentials, brothers, Jesus is quick to point not to himself, but to who? To God his Father. To give credit to God the Father. My teaching is not mine, but God's. Elsewhere, I haven't come here looking to do my will, but my Father's. It's not about my glory, but about my Father's glory. I came to do His will, not my will. Over and over again, Jesus points to God, His Father. I am astounded and marvel at the humility of our Lord Jesus. What humility! Here we see the the voluntary, joyful submission of the eternal Son of God fully on display for us to behold and exult and rejoice and relish in right here. And it shouldn't surprise us. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said of himself that he is gentle and lowly or humble of heart. That's how he described himself. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following, uh, that passage makes the point that Jesus displayed his humility by coming to earth as a man, by becoming a human by adding a, a human nature to his divine deity. And then that same passage in Philippians 2 then makes application to us that we too, like Jesus, should walk in humility toward one another. That instead of, of boasting in ourselves selfishly, that we should detract attention away from self and that it's all about Jesus increasing and us decreasing, right? Like earlier in John. John the Baptist, what did he say? He must increase, but I must decrease. It's all about exalting Jesus, making much of him. That is a heart of humility right there. And we practice humility, of course, by putting others before ourselves, serving one another. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. If that is Jesus, then we are called to be Christ-like and walk in his steps of humility. True Christ-like humility is shown, brothers, when we, like Christ, look not to serve, to have others serve us, but us to serve others, beginning with those in our home. When we look to not get, but to give to other people, right? That shows a heart of humility. Let me ask you, how is, what would be a litmus test of your humility this morning? How are you doing in the area of humility? It's difficult to know, Pastor. You know, am I supposed to ask myself that? How about going to your wife and asking about that? How about going and asking one trusted brother in your small group? Brothers, brother, how am I doing in this particular area? Do you detect in me a sense of pride? I want to listen. I want to hear what you have to say. What have you guys seen in me? Kids, kids, how, how is dad doing in the area of humility? What are some needs that you guys have that I haven't been meeting? You know, that duty of service, that loving duty of service shows a heart of humility. I think we, we need to be open before the Lord about this. And we need to be willing to go ask those that love us and who trust us and who are able to see us on a daily basis and ask how are we, do, are we doing in this area of humility. All right. Fourth portrait, his fervent love. Portrait number four, behold Jesus's fervent love in verses 19 through 24. What we see in these verses, verses 19 through 24, is Jesus calling out these religious leaders on their hypocrisy and on their failure to understand the true intent of the law of God. Remember the the healing of the paralyzed man? 
earlier in John, these guys are still grumbling and still frustrated about Jesus having healed that paralyzed man on the Sabbath from back in chapter 5, verse 1. And that marvelous act of compassion really, really stressed these guys out. Instead of them thinking, wow, what a loving, compassionate man this Jesus that he would heal such a man like this, that he would take notice of him in his desperate condition. Instead of relishing in what Jesus did, what are they doing? They're frustrated. You have violated the law of God. You healed that man on the Sabbath. But they're so hypocritical, aren't they? Here they are intending to to murder him in violation of the law, all the while they're upset with Jesus performing an act of mercy on the Sabbath. Here they are, uh, okay with circumcising a male on the eighth day, if it, even if it fell on the Sabbath that they did that, but they're not okay with Jesus showing love on the Sabbath. You know what the problem with these hypocrites was? They may have had the, the law, and even that they didn't see accurately, and they went beyond what stood written, and adding other traditions and all of that. They had the law, but they didn't understand the intent and the spirit of the law. They were all about the letter of the law, all the while missing the, the heart and the point of the law and law-keeping, which was loving obedience and loving adherence to the law, right? Underline the word love. What do I mean by that? Well, what did Jesus answer the so-called expert scribe who comes to him in Mark 12, 28, asking, Teacher, which is the greatest or foremost commandment? What did he ask? Boil it down for us, Lord. Teacher, boil it down for us. What takes priority? And they used to debate this thing. Which commandments are the greatest and which ones are the, you know, still important to obey, but not as important as these. They used to debate that all the time, these experts. Boil it down for us. What takes priority? What did Jesus answer? One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. Vertically, you are to love God wholeheartedly and supremely, Jesus says. But interestingly, he doesn't stop there, does he? He says the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang the whole law and the prophets. Boy, they should have known that. It wasn't just about rule keeping in and of itself. You were to obey God's law ultimately as an expression of supreme love for God and love for other people that it was sacrificial and characterized by service. Who did that like no one else? The Lord Jesus Christ. During his incarnation, never did a man love the way that Christ loved, right? The spotless God-man was the perf- or was the personification, brothers, of love and truth. Isn't that how he's described back in John 1.14? That Jesus was full of grace and truth. Amazing. And he displayed that and he lived that out in his life. No one ever loved more fervently, more genuinely than our precious Lord. And if you want to be a Christ-like man, you will live out what 1 Peter 1.22 calls us to do, which is to fervently, earnestly love one another from the heart. Please mark it, brothers. The greatest, one of the greatest character traits for a, a courageous, strong man is how much we love, is our love life. Let me ask you that right now. How is your love life going? What? Is this the context to be asking that question, Pastor Kempis? I'm not talking about anything romantic. How is your love life? 
How fervently are you, how zealously and fervently are you loving God? How are you loving other people right now in your life? How is your patience? We're going to talk about that right now. As in not working or expression of your love. How's your love life? How's your love for others? Are you using your spiritual gifts to love other people in the church, to edify them and build them up? Are you serving brothers? Not as an act of duty. Remember Martha? You don't want to be like Martha, running around doing service, which is a good thing, but a heartless, frustrated, stressed out kind of service that misses the the person for which you are performing that service, Jesus Christ, right? But are you serving from the heart as an expression of your love for others and your love for the Lord? Are you using your spiritual gifts? Are you giving to the Lord? Are you using your energy to serve Christ and to serve others? Portrait number five, his unceasing long-suffering. Behold Jesus' unceasing long-suffering in verses 25 through 31. Someone has rightly said this, that one's long-suffering or patience shines brightest when antagonism is hottest against you. One's long-suffering or patience shines brightest when antagonism is hottest against you. In other words, our patient long-suffering is most admirable when we are experiencing the strongest opposition, and in the midst of that opposition and antagonism for the sake of righteousness, we suffer long. That's admirable before the eyes of the Lord. First Peter teaches all about that, that we should suffer for the sake of righteousness like Christ, right? Well, I believe that the Lord Jesus was the supreme example of this unceasing long-suffering. In verses 25 through 31, you have this, this Johannine sandwich, if you will. Okay, We talk about, when I was walking through the Gospel of Mark for three years, there were these, these Markin Gospel of Mark sandwiches. This literary device um, when you sandwich in an important truth in the middle. Okay, Two breads and then an important truth in the middle. And that's what you have here in verses 25 through 31. In verses 25 through 27, one bread, if you will, you have the the people of Jerusalem expressing their perplexity and doubts about Jesus. And then in verses 30 through 31, the other bread part, if you will, you have doubts, hostility toward Jesus. Verse 30 even tells us that they wanted to seize Jesus. But then right smack in the middle of the unit, in the meat part of, the, of this uh, text passage, if you will, in verses 28 through 29, right smack in the middle, you have the genuine compassion and long-suffering of Jesus toward these people on display. Hostility, hostility, compassion, and long-suffering. Don't miss this. Verse 28 says that while in the temple, Jesus proclaimed. And the sense is that, that he, he's crying out. As in a passionate, loud plea. Look at verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple this loud outcry from our Lord. You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I have come from him and he sent me. I mean, take note of this. Here is Jesus' unceasing long-suffering, opposition, opposition, crying out, fervently, passionately, pleading with these people, reasoning with them who are doubtful and and hostile toward him. Boy, he's pleading with his antagonistic enemies. And as we sort of skim through this, 
the previous passage last week. I don't know about you, but I certainly need some work in this area. Do you? To be patient and and long-suffering this way? I mean, we're not wired naturally to be long-suffering towards others. Especially when people don't want to listen to what God has to say. Especially when, when people are speaking the opposite of the Word of God in particular areas of Scripture. Whether it's the family infrastructure or God's design for the home. We see all of people in in our culture pushing back against those things. And brothers, in the midst of that, it would be very easy for us, instead of loving people with the truth and being patient and continuing to just be faithful with the truth, for us to get frustrated and just throw our hands up in the air and say, forget it. You know, they've offended me. That's the last time we'll allow that. That person crossed me. I'm done with that person. Do we ever see Jesus doing that? Say, well, he's, he's perfect. Absolutely. But we're called to walk by the grace of God, albeit imperfectly in his steps, aren't we? Patiently and long-suffering with others. You know, God has been so patient toward us, right? And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who are we? Who are we to display a lack of patience towards other people? And even when we do, It's important for us to go back and and confess that and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. So if we're honest, as we look at this portrait of Jesus, we're not Christ-like in our suffering along with others, brothers. We're not. And yet if we're going to be like Jesus, like our glorious Christ, and reaching people for Christ, then we need to emulate His long-suffering towards others, even if they are hostile antagonists. Finally, portrait number six. His glorious resolve. Behold Jesus' glorious resolve in verses 32 to 36. In those verses, as the religious leaders are hear the feedback of the people, what do they want to do? They want to seize Jesus. Verse 32 says that they sent officers to arrest him. An official delegation of officers to arrest him. And yet in the midst of this, Jesus takes this opportunity once again to talk about his origin from the Father, that he's going to accomplish his Father's mission. And not only do they not understand Jesus' words, but they don't believe Jesus' words. They don't believe him. But what does our Lord do? In the midst of all of this antagonism, all of this hostility, does he retreat? Does he quit? I mean, I find it amazing that through all of the pushback, Jesus is still resolved in fulfilling his mission. And the comfort that I have is that we're going to see this again and again and again later on in the upper room, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the midst of slaps to his face and slander and abuse and antagonism. We're going to see the long-suffering of Jesus. And through all of that, as First Peter says, he uttered no threat. He kept entrusting himself to his Father who judges righteously, right? But Jesus essentially says, I'm going to be here a little bit longer. Soon I'm going to depart. I'm going back to where I came from. Implication, repent and believe while you have time. This is about five to six months before Passion Week, before his his death. And we're going to get a chance to see the Lord's resolve more extensively. But here he continues on the path of his father, this plan to redeem humanity or those who would believe in him. And I love what Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says. Write that passage down. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. That as you and I run the race of the Christian life, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
Listen to this. Who, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Question once again. What was the reason for our Savior's glorious resolve? That he might fulfill his Father's will. And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, he was doing this for the joy that was set before him. What joy was that? Fulfilling his Father's will, but also that he might go to the cross, pay for our sins, and procure for us who have believed in him sweet forgiveness, brothers. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Eternal life. Quality and quantity of life. Such was the resolve of our glorious Christ. And we'll see it again and again and again. Thanks be to God for his glorious resolve. Amen? That Jesus finished the race. Want to be like him? We must be men who are resolved by his grace, right? To fulfill our mission here in this world. Let's pray, brothers. Father God, Lord, thank you. Thank you, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, that we can behold the face of God or the glory of God in the face of Christ. That we can know you through your Son, the eternal Son of God. Thank you that we can behold him on the pages of your word. Father, I pray that our hearts would continue to be moved. That we would be moved, like as Jonathan Edwards would say, in religious or Christian affections, with the chief one being love. Love for our Savior that would drive us to obedience. Not to sweep our sin under the rug, but to loving, grateful obedience in the light of who he is. Father, thank you for the perfect God-man that our Lord Jesus is. And we know that we're always going to fall short of him. And yet we're called to walk in his steps by your grace. And even in our weakness and in our failure, I pray that we would be quick to be humble men who are broken in confession and repentance before you and before others that we hurt and we offend. Help us, Father, to both exult in our Savior as we continue to walk through John and that we would emulate his wonderful character and seek to be like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.